welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, we are in Acts chapter 2. As I stated earlier, I've titled this message, Tongues Are for Prophecy. So we land on the topic of prophecy. That's, that's what we're landing on in Acts chapter 2 in verse 14. And, uh, and not only of prophecy, but a particular form or, or particular conduit of prophecy described as tongues. That Greek term, uh, propheteu, which is prophecy, uh, indicates a verbal message from God. It does, not, uh, it does not mean merely to tell the future. That is a, that is a misunderstanding. Uh, rather, a prophet, one who prophesies, speaks and delivers a message for God. Think of the gravity of that. You speak for God. And that verbal message then obviously then must be logical to understand if God is going to speak. Meanwhile, biblical tongues, a biblical manifestation of tongues we discovered last week is miraculously speaking in foreign language that you yourself have never learned and even you yourself do not understand. That's what verifies a tongue as being a divine miracle. And in verses 1 through 13, you will see that three times, three times, uh, the eyewitnesses said, we hear them speak in our own language, even the language to which we were born. This is while the disciples were declaring the mighty deeds of God, so it was a, it was a message that they could comprehend, verse 11. And uh, that means that some observers at least understood the words spoken. Travelers from other nations who had come for Pentecost and grew up with different languages could understand the foreign languages, the tongues which were spoken. And uh, when a text highlights a fact three times that these were languages, folks, that is called emphasis. That is emphasis. So Jesus' disciples spoke in previously unlearned foreign languages, which are tongues. At what point, Jeff Rogan, at what point does this phenomenon of tongues become prophecy? When does it become, when do tongues, when does a, a foreign language become God speaking to us, a prophecy. It's at the point of interpretation. Tongues become prophecy at the point of interpretation. They turn into prophecy once they are translated so the audience can understand. For tongues to be of value for the church, then, that foreign language must be interpreted for the church. Tongues are for prophecy. But tongues only become prophecy. They only become God's message to us 
after they have been interpreted. That's what we see in the first 13 verses here. Um, You use what is clear to interpret that in Scripture which is a little less clear. That'll help us clear the mud as we go back to 1 Corinthians 14 a little later. If, however, if God's message is not interpreted and people therefore cannot understand it, tongues become a conduit for God's judgment. It's someone like the, somewhat like the judgment that was present in parables. Jesus said that even while hearing, they do not hear and they do not perceive or understand. That is a form of judgment inherent in parables for some who do not get it. And in verse 13, many local Judeans, many who were from Jerusalem standing in the audience, who who did not grow up learning these foreign languages, uh, they even began to mock the disciples as they were speaking. They were mocking divine revelation on the day of Pentecost. Think about that. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, tongues are a sign of God's judgment for the unbeliever. But prophecy, that means tongues that are interpreted, is a sign for believers. We who believe God's message and don't claim that they're just drunk, all right? As I read, beginning in verse 14, Peter rebukes these unbelieving men first and then explains what they are witnessing is a prediction given through the Old Testament prophet Joel. Joel essentially says, in the last days the Holy Spirit will be poured out broadly on all kinds of people, and here's here's what happens, and they shall prophesy. Please notice that Peter asserts twice how these tongues they are hearing once interpreted, have become prophecy. All right? Reading from verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, For it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Then he quotes Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and what's it say? And they shall prophesy. So these tongues described in verses 1 through 13 have become prophecy once the, the, those who were visiting Jerusalem from other parts of the country were interpreting the mighty deeds of God. Uh, tongues uh, that, which the disciples uttered here Uh, Once interpreted, they reveal these mighty deeds of God we see uh, early in the chapter. They have then become prophecy. And Peter exclaims, 
Peter exclaims, do not neglect to heed these words. God is speaking today, says Peter. These are foreigners in our midst. They are interpreting for you. Uh, Ignore it. Call it drunkenness, if you will. But it is at your own peril. Tongues are a form of judgment to the unbeliever. Also, verse 17, we see uh, that these are the last days. Phrases that you see in Scripture, the, the last hour or the latter times. Here we see these last days. Uh, those in Scripture refer to the period between Christ's first advent and then His second coming in the future. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. The Apostle John wrote somewhere around 90 A.D., saying, Children, we know that it is the last hour. So, this entire period extending now from the day of Pentecost until Christ's future return describes the last days. Indicates that these are the the last days of this corrupted age. We aren't looking for a new age. Instead, we are watching for Christ to return. Uh, Then we will be rescued. We'll be rescued, we'll be raptured. Uh, There will be wrath and judgment on the unbeliever. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, 2 Peter chapter 3, where Christ will establish His throne and literally reign on earth. That's what we're looking for, says Peter. But on Pentecost, God pours out His Spirit. He pours it forth. Look at verse 14. Who's He speaking to? Men of Judea. Men of Judea, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Peter says, listen, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And notice in verse 17, God is credited as speaking authoritatively through Joel. So so this is actually God speaking. He's just using Joel as a device. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Now your translation may say upon all flesh or you have a footnote, one or the other. That reference to all mankind, it is not a reference to every person on the planet. But our context helps us to understand that God's Spirit is being poured out on every kind of man on the planet. All mankind. All flesh. You know, the New Testament assures us, Jew, Gentile, male, female, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman. That's Colossians 3.11. And while emphasizing this diversity among redeemed mankind, Paul remarks, Christ is all and in all. 
Similar to last week, this diversity now under the new covenant, it's very different than the prophetic utterance under the old covenant in Israel, which, which only came from a few men, few and far between, sometimes separated by hundreds of years, right? But under the new covenant, and during these last days, announces Peter, this church age, verse 17, even your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men, old men, bond slaves, both men and women. 500 years before Pentecost, God proclaimed in verse, four, verse 18, I will in those days pour forth my spirit and they will prophesy. Uh, prophesy. Bad tooth, as I said earlier. These are the last days. These are those days when God pours forth of His Spirit. I agree with numerous commentators that uh, the proper understanding of verses 1 through 4, which state they were all together, the whole house was filled, and there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves and resting on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues. That implies, says many, if not most, that implies all 120 in the upper room spoke in tongues, and therefore, once interpreted, they all prophesied of the mighty deeds of God, and that 120 surely included a diverse group of Jesus' followers, old, young, men, women, their sons and daughters were with them. Therefore, using that observation, verses 17 and 18 can already be embraced as fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. God doesn't pour out His Spirit on all flesh, but on all kinds of flesh. Very different than the Old Covenant, which focused mainly on, on ethnic descendants of the twelve tribes. Now it's being poured out on the nations. The reference there to visions and dreams, you're going to want to know that that, that is something that, that is not new at all at Pentecost. That's not something new. That's not the new wine that needs new wineskins, as you're going to find in many poor interpretations. Um, no, uh, the visions and dreams is not something new at Pentecost. Rather, these reflect the typical Old Testament experience for prophets who spoke from God, and they did so under divine inspiration. These local Jews, these Judeans, uh, they would have almost certainly recognized that Peter's reference to dreams and to visions arises from Numbers chapter 12 and verse 6. What do we find there? We find the murmuring of Miriam and her brother Aaron, and, and they were chatting to this, themselves privately, and this is what they're saying. They're like, you know, do you think that God really spoke to Moses? Oh, 
That's, that's a memorable and frightening scene where God tells Moses and Aaron and Miriam, all three of you outside. We're going outside the tent of meeting, right in front of the tabernacle right now, where the, where the whole nation of Israel can be addressed. And the God of Israel, Yahweh, he makes this public announcement outside of the tent of meeting, and God says to Israel, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Even openly, says the Lord, and not in dark sayings, and he, Moses, beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses, asked Yahweh. And so the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. Miriam began to experience some really poor complexion issues immediately after that. You remember... That's the point where she turned leprous all over, white as snow. You think God really spoke to Moses? And beginning at Pentecost, visions and dreams are not new forms of prophecy, but they were the historic standards in Israel. They were the traditional forms of prophecy. Uh, what is new is the diversity of people among this 120 who were having the visions and who were prophesying. And diversity continues to describe the, the dreams and visions even later on in the book of Acts. Later we're going to see that even Gentiles, even Cornelius has a vision. Peter, Paul, others have them as well. So again, this is all portrayed as having been fulfilled in Acts. Not just the day of Pentecost, but fulfilled in Acts. In case you're curious of the difference of dreams and visions, it's probable that visions were experienced while awake and dreams were experienced while asleep. That's most probable. And it's sometime later on in the church when the book of Colossians warns Christians to no longer heed a personal vision as authoritative. And at the end of Revelation, we are warned to no longer add prophecies to what is already written into this book. And for this reason, 1 Corinthians 13.8 states, If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. And since nobody today suddenly breaks out in fluent Russian or Swahili, the hard evidence suggests that tongues, together with all forms of new prophecy, have, just as Scripture predicted, been done away and they have ceased, exactly as Scripture anticipated they would. There's just one more observation from Numbers chapter 12. The dreams and visions, again, were the typical conduit for prophecy at the Old Testament prophets. But how did God speak to Moses? How did he speak to Moses? 
mouth to mouth and face to face, right? How then did we receive perfectly accurate accounts of how creation occurred, the stories of Adam and Eve, and of Noah and the flooding of the earth? God spoke divine revelation directly to Moses, mouth to mouth. The accounts that Moses recorded for us in Genesis, they were not passed down through folklore. They are not hearsay, they're not oral traditions or using of crib notes. God spoke directly to Moses without error. Kids, don't you dare say it. Did God really speak to Moses? Oh, yeah, yeah. And this is how we received the history of man in Genesis. So Peter says to the audience at Pentecost, what you are hearing, it's all prophetic. It's all prophetic. Uh, some there obviously must have experienced the old school dreams and visions. But now there's also a new conduit for prophecy, and it's called tongues. Peter said, give heed to my words. What you see is God's promise to pour out the Holy Spirit as was spoken by the prophet Joel. If you have a series of notes in your study Bible that reference verses 16, 17, and 18, stating that this pouring out of God's Spirit is not fulfilled at Pentecost, but even today that Christians are waiting for it to be fulfilled in the future, or implies that God's promise of the Holy Spirit has not and will not be poured out on all mankind until after Christ's return in His future kingdom, you can feel free to tear that right out of your study Bible. Now you don't have to do that. Didn't mean that. Didn't mean that. For John MacArthur, Israel has not yet received the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now I accept a distinction between the Old Covenant and Israel and the New Covenant, the church. I get that. But MacArthur insists there remains a distinction between ethnic Jews, Israel, and Gentiles during the church age. I use the following kind of inflammatory language. It's just an illustration. I just want you to emphasize, uh, to, to hear the emphasis. I want to provoke critical thought right here. In MacArthur's theology, in his eschatology, respect the man, he has all kinds of great theology. Great teacher, one of the greatest of our age. But in MacArthur's theology, the bride of Christ, the church, is someone that Jesus is temporarily dating, but the bridegroom's true affections lie not with the bride, but his heart remains with future Israel. For MacArthur, the church is a temporary hiccup. It's also been described as a parenthesis, parentheses in time, until Christ reinitiates his old relationship and old covenant with Israel. 
I'm not making that up. But that is wrong. That is wrong. The old covenant is obsolete. Scripture assures us the groom is waiting for his bride, the church. And when we arrive, uh, we're all going to celebrate a great wedding feast. There's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride in all of her glory, consisting of both Jews and Gentiles in one church. The bride in all her glory is the apple of God's eye. Not the nation of Israel. In fact, when you look at the end of Revelation, chapter 21, you will see that there is a bride adorned for her husband and an angel telling the apostle John, quote, Come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, Coming down out of heaven, God, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone. It's describing the church. And at the cross, the bridegroom set all of his affections on the bride. She's not a hiccup. But for MacArthur, Pentecost is not what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. Verse 16, he suggests, won't be fulfilled until after Christ returns and pours out his spirit on Israel. But there exists another significant problem, a, a, a hurdle to that theory. Who is Peter speaking to in verse 14? Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem. And in verse 22, look with me. Men of Israel, listen to these words. At Pentecost, the church is entirely Hebrew. Later, in verse 38, Peter declares to the nation of Israel, Believe in the name of Jesus Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again in verse 39, to Israel, this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. These are the last days, says Peter, and this event, Pentecost, is what God had promised to Israel. We, we Gentiles, we don't come on the scene and we don't get grafted in until sometime later. The new covenant is given distinctly to Israel at Pentecost, directly to the nation of Israel at Pentecost. Other things that are new at Pentecost are not these dreams and visions, but now the prophesying or the speaking forth of the mighty deeds of God um, is no longer reserved to just a few individuals and the typical conduit for prophecy from this day forward is going to be tongues. This will be the typical going forward. And the most, and two of the most, the highest advantages of tongues for the church uh, are these. Um, there are two things. First, this new conduit requires an interpreter which supplies mutual accountability. 
if one, uh, one individual is not permitted to just stand up in the church and say, uh, listen, God told me. No, tongues require interpretation. There must exist an interdependence for accountability when God speaks. This is very practical, by the way. There are many churches out, uh, out there that are, that are very, very, they're down a tangent. They're off the road. They're in the ditch. They're beyond the ditch. They're out in the field somewhere. Second, when there was given an Old Testament prophecy, typical, uh, typically the validating element was a very specific, um, a very detailed prediction, something that was impossible to counterfeit, by the way, a very specific prediction contained within that prophecy as part of that prophecy that needed to come true. That was how you validated uh, prophecy in the Old Covenant. As one example, Joseph in Egypt, he declared, you know, God is going to provide seven years of abundance and it's going to be followed by seven years of lack, right? Seven years of famine. With Pharaoh's dream which was God's revelation, Genesis 41, Egypt had to wait 7 to 14 years to completely validate that that prophecy had originated from God. There was a lapse in time before they were certain that it was true. No longer so with tongues. No longer true with the church. Now when a man speaks for God, that truth can be verified, it can be validated immediately. Church didn't have to wait for years or any time at all to, to hear what God had really said. The validating element is inherent when speaking in a language the speaker himself doesn't even know. And prior to the completion of, of the canon of Scripture, which on the day of Pentecost there was none, no written New Testament yet at that time. Prior to the completion of the canon of Scripture, before any New Testament was written, through tongues, the early church could now know immediately that God had spoken it as long as there was an interpreter present. So this all has to do with God speaking and with prophecy, clarity, inerrancy, authority, God doesn't play games with this, all right? He does not play games with this gift. It's, it's His Word. Let's return to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'm probably going to need more water to finish this one. I'm all right. I'm all right. Remember, a tongue becomes prophecy... God's message to us, a tongue becomes prophecy only after it has been interpreted by somebody else who understands the language and is present. But prior to interpretation, listening to a foreign language is just plain annoying. It's just annoying. Look at verse 1. Paul writes, Pursue love, Yet desire earnest, earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Christ's church, Christ's church should equally value 
earnestly desire all the spiritual gifts, generosity, mercy, teaching, service, mercy, wisdom, leadership, exhortation, tongues, service, etc., etc. All gifts are special, all gifts are spiritual, and all are to be earnestly desired. This is why I know that each of you rise early every, every morning and pray specifically, Lord, give me the gift of increased generosity. Right? Because they're all to be desired. I see blank stares. Nah, y'all are generous. But it's a gift. All gifts are to be valued. All are to be sought earnestly. And why? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7 uh, that we are assured that each manifestation of the Spirit is for our common good. Every manifestation of the Spirit is for our common good. We value them all. But there is one gift that reigns supreme. What is it? Prophecy. Why is that? It's because only through prophecy does God speak clearly and intelligibly to men. Peter even assures us that Scripture is written prophecy. It is God speaking to men clearly. It's a form of written prophecy. In a sense, though it's not a miraculous gift, in a sense, if we just stand up here and read Scripture faithfully, that is prophesying. It is God speaking forth to all of us, uh, but it's not a miraculous uh, conduit for prophecy. But through prophecy, God speaks clearly and intelligibly and intelligently to men. Contrasted to prophecy are tongues in verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. So even the speaker does not understand. And so tongues left uninterpreted are not understood by men, but remain a mystery. Verse 2 is a very negative statement against tongues. Because even when hearing, they still do not perceive, and they still do not understand. As I stated earlier, tongues left uninterpreted, like parables, are a conduit of divine judgment because the hearers fail to understand what God says, what the Spirit says. Mysteries are very, very bad, all right? Contrast that to verse 3. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. The person who prophesies in context is the interpreter of the tongue. He relays God's message. He clarifies in declaring the mighty deeds of God to all the hearers in the room this now is very, very good. 
But in verse 4, another contrast. One who speaks in a tongue, he only edifies himself. Edification there seems to imply that speaking in an unlearned foreign language, miraculously, it was some kind of invigorating, invigorating experience. There was something that was invigorating, uh, but left uninterpreted, tongues is selfish and bad. He only edifies himself and doesn't understand what he's saying. But one who prophesies, what does it say? Edifies the church. So the interpreter who prophesies, it's always good. It's always good. Verse 5. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Sure. Why not? It's divine revelation. But even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. If you have a Greek interlinear, interlinear Bible, puts the Greek words above the English words, uh, you will notice that the word he, in verse 5, is not present in the original Greek. So, so he does not exist to point to any specific antecedent or any specific person. Rather, the passage insists that there must be an interpreter. Because in verse 5, the word interprets is written in the Greek singular third-person voice. Now, I know all of you remember junior high grammar, right? The first person is the one who does the speaking. The second person is the audience which hears the speaking, and the third person always indicates somebody else. A third party, a third person, that is the interpreter. He's the third person. If that only confused you, I'll read the second half of verse 5 again. Greater is one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless a third person an intermediary interprets. Why? So that the church may receive edifying. It has to be made clear. When interpretation results, neither gift is greater. The one speaking the tongue and the one who interprets, they cooperate with one another, and the link of divine revelation is complete, and everyone's edified. But verse 6, 